I'm going to start with uh, a really godly example from the movie Godfather 3. <laughs> How many of you watch Godfather? One, two, or three? Ashamed of you. I've heard it was violent. Well, there's a scene in Godfather 3 where Michael Corleone, who is the Godfather, and he's an evil man, but they wear their religion. They attend their masses and do all of those things. And in this particular scene in Godfather 3, Michael Corleone has went to talk to the bishop, and they're standing outside this huge church. And next to them is, there the, is this large fountain, and this church is hundreds of years old. And as they're standing there, the discussion comes around to where the, the bishop says to Michael Corleone, look at the, the fountain. See all those rocks in the fountain, how smooth they have become over the years. And Corleone says, yeah, I noticed that. And he says to them, but if we would take one of those stones out of that fountain and we would break it open, you would see that the inside of that stone would be perfectly dry. Even after hundreds of years, the water has not permeated that stone. And then believe it or not, in that movie, the next line reads something like this. For centuries, men have been surrounded by Christianity, but Christ has not penetrated. Christ does not live within them. What truth is spoken in such an ungodly movie? Christ, Christianity surrounds us, but as individuals, has it penetrated? This is a powerful object lesson for our study this morning as we continue in chapter 5 of the story. And again, I encourage you and hope that you're keeping up and studying at home so as we get to this, a lot of it's review for you. But in the study today, we see Israel, God's chosen people. They have experienced the power of God in unbelievable ways. They have seen the miracles of God. They've experienced His presence around them. And now God is telling them that He wants to live with them and do life together with them. And yet, well, I'm getting way ahead of the story. Let's back up. We're going to read in, in uh, Exodus. The title of the message this morning is simply this. You are different. Act like it. I'm not scolding, I'm just telling you the title. In Exodus chapter 19, I'm going to read the first eight verses. And get the time frame. They have just recently been delivered from the bondage of Egypt. They have just recently passed through the Red Sea by this miracle of God stopping, the, opening up the sea where they could walk across on dry land. When the Egyptians came to chase after them, the waters collapsed and it destroyed the Egyptians. And here it says, In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell all the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, 
and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I have brought you to myself. Now, then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came down off the mountain and he calls the elders of the people and he sets before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered him together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will surely do. Chapter 5 of the story is a key transition time in the story of God's plan. If you remember in, in chapter 1 of the story, the creation of Adam and Eve, God created an Adam and Eve to fellowship with them. And we see in that story that picture where he was actually walking with them in the cool of the garden, fellowshipping with them in intimacy. And then sin happened. And then in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 of the story, we see God still interacting with his people, but through individuals. We see him dealing with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But now here we are in chapter 5. And Moses and his people have been taken out of Egypt. And God is speaking to them. And he lays out this covenant, this promise. And he says, if you'll do this and this, then you will be my people. And he says, I want to come and live amongst you. I want to be with you. It's like he's going back to chapter 1 with Adam and Eve. I want to be with you. I want to be amongst the people. It's a transition time. And at Mount Sinai, God speaks to Moses. And Moses, you can get a little confused because Moses goes up and down this mountain more than once. And the first time he goes up and speaks to God, God tells him verbally the Ten Commandments. And then he tells him many, many other ordinances and different things that they're to do, and specifically how they're supposed to do it. And then it says Moses comes down the mountain, and he talks to the people. And he tells them, this is what the Lord has said. And he goes through and tells them all that the Lord has said. And that's what brings their response. In, in Exodus 19, verse 8, that we just read, God is saying, and I'm paraphrasing him when I say it this way, but he's basically saying, Here's how I want you to live. You are my people and you're supposed to be different than everyone else. You're not supposed to look like everyone else. You should be distinct so that everyone else will look at you and say, those are God's people. His blessings are upon His people. You're to be different from them. In Exodus 19.8, like I just read, it said the people answered him and they came and the people said these words, All that the Lord has spoken, we will surely do. Sounds like a good way to respond to God when he speaks to you, when he gives instructions. Basically, God has said, I want to be with you, but there's things we've got to get right. And the people are saying, we are all in. We're all in. We will do whatever it is you say. So here they are, these millions of people. They're gathered around this mountain where God is speaking to them. 
They're about to become God's nation. They're free from Egypt. That They're at the base of this Mount Sinai. God has kept His promise that He made way back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham saying, I will make of you a great nation. There's millions of Jewish people there. Millions of Israelites there. And God has established this standard that He says, this is how I want you to live. So that you will be distinct. That you will bring glory and honor to me. Separated from the other people. And He's basically asked them, Here's ten promises I want you to make. We call them the Ten Commandments. He says, if you follow these ten commandments, if you make these promises to me, you will truly be my people and you will be a blessed nation and you will stand out amongst all the nations of the earth as my people. And then God calls Moses back up the mountain. Now Moses and the people, when they made this promise... They sacrificed and they worshiped God. They did all the right things. They didn't just verbalize with their lips, but they worshiped and sacrificed. And then Moses goes back up the mountain and this time as he's going up the mountain, God is going to etch those commandments in stone. These Ten Commandments. And as he goes up the mountain, Aaron stays behind. Aaron is Moses' brother. You may remember that when Moses was complaining to God and saying, I don't know if I'm the guy for this job, he gave him Aaron. Aaron to be his mouthpiece. Aaron to speak instead of Moses having to speak. And God is hidden in the cloud over this mountain and Moses goes up the mountain and disappears into this cloud on the mountain. And God is handwriting the Ten Commandments for Moses and for his people. Meanwhile, Back at the camp, the scene is taking place. In Exodus 32, verse 1, it says this, When Moses had been gone, the people saw that Moses was gone a long time, and he was slow in coming back. He was slow coming down from the mountain. So they all went to Aaron. Aaron was in charge. And they gathered around Aaron, and they said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Think about this for a moment. It's the first day of the third month since the Red Sea. Just days before, when Moses had come down off the mountain and told them how to live so that God would bless them and be with them, and they all answered, every word the Lord has spoken, we will surely do. And here, it's not even 40 days that Moses has been gone and the people are getting impatient. And they're starting to make excuses. Where is Moses? We don't even know when he is and when he's coming back. We don't know what's happened to him. Aaron, make us gods that will lead us. This Moses who brought us out of Egypt. There's their mistake right there. You see it right in those words. This Moses who brought us out of Egypt. Who brought them out of Egypt? God brought them out of Egypt. Not Moses. Moses led them. He was God's instrument. The people are so off track. They asked to bring God's. Now, in their defense, as feeble as this defense is, these people have been for over 400 years, many, many generations, slaves in Egypt. 
And in Egypt, there were gods for everything. So these people have grown, around, grown up around all these different gods. So they're saying, make us some gods that we can follow. They were impatient. They begin to doubt God's plan. Impatience with God brings trouble. So when you think about what's going on, of all people, Aaron, Moses' brother, his right-hand man, when Moses stood before Pharaoh, Aaron stood there right next to him. When the plagues were, were spoken, Aaron heard it all firsthand, right out of the lips of Moses. When he saw the miracles, he was right there. He was the, the, the voice of God via Moses. And the people come to him. And what does he do? It's, it's insane what he does. He tells the people, give me all your golden earrings, all your golden jewelry, and we're going to put it in the, in the fire, and we're going to melt it, and we're going to form it and carve it into an idol, this golden calf, a golden calf. And then these are the words that came out of Aaron's mouth. If you read the story, he takes this golden calf that he has formed and carved, and then he says before the people, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. How in the world could that happen? Aaron, of all people, this is the God. This God that he had just formed with his own hands. Having witnessed the miracles and the power of the real living God, says this. And just a few days before all of this, the people had made a covenant with God. They made a promise to God. All that the Lord has spoken, we will surely do. Well, while God has got Moses up in the mountain, is speaking to Moses, this is taking place down at the camp. And God knows this. And he says, Moses, you got to go now. Your people down there, the people down there have corrupted themselves. They're making for themselves an idol. It seems surprising, but it shouldn't surprise us. Because what these people were doing, people today do all the time. They were honoring God with their lips, but not with their lives. All that you have spoken, we will surely do. Well, maybe not. When push comes to shove, maybe not. So God says to Moses, Moses, you've got to get down there, get off the mountain, go to the people, tell them corrupted themselves. God's anger, it says, God's anger is aroused. And he says, you know what? I think it's time for me to crush them. And Moses, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Wow. If you or I were Moses, that sounds pretty good. I'm the guy. You make a great nation out of my offspring. That's not what Moses does, is it? Before Moses even leaves the mountain, before he even goes back down and sees this crazy scene that's taking place in the camp, Moses intercedes with God. He pleads with God. 
he reaches out and says, God, you, you can't do that. What would the other nations think if you abandoned your people like that? And, and God relents and Moses goes down. And, and now Moses, it's his turn to be angry. And, and I, I can't imagine the scene, but, but you know, he comes out of the cloud, he comes down the mountains, he's carrying the two tablets and he sees the people. And who knows how ridiculous they were acting by this time, but they've got the golden calf and they've got an altar and they're making sacrifices to the golden calf. And Moses, in disgust and discouragement and disappointment, throws the commandments down, the two tablets, and they shatter. And he basically says, what are you doing? Aaron, what are you thinking? He took the golden calf. And I'd love to see how he did this exactly. But it says he took the golden calf and he ground it into a fine powder. And then he spread it on the stream, the water, and he made the people drink it. This is what he did to their God. Your weak, powerless, worthless God crushed to find powder and now you're going to ingest it. And you know what happens with the things we ingest, right? We won't go there. But that's where their God went. God's got a sense of humor. Okay, get your minds back on track. In Exodus 32, verse 21, God then turns to Aaron and I can't imagine putting myself in Aaron's place. I mean, I'm, I'm his right-hand man. I've seen it all, done it all, experienced it all. And now Moses is looking at me. And Aaron, you idiot. Well, maybe he didn't use that word, but he should have. What are you doing? He says to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Don't be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. That's well, their fault. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. And listen to this. So I told them, Whoever has any god or any gold jewelry, <coughs> take it off. And then they gave me their gold. I threw it into the fire. And out came this golden calf. Now, my wife teaches kindergartners, and I think kindergartners could come up with a better story than that one. Aaron, what are you thinking? Notice the irony that's taking place here. While they're doing this, making this golden calf, God is up on the mountain, writing on the stones. Number one, you should have no other gods before me. Number two, you should never make any graven images or idols. He hasn't even got them off the mountain in his own handwriting, and the people down below are violating both of them. Moses then looks at the people and he says, Who here is on God's side? <coughs> and a group called the Levites, descendants of the Levi, they came over by Moses and said, we are on God's side. And he says, take out your swords and go through the camp. 
And it says they went through the camp with their swords and 3,000 people were killed. There's some lessons to be learned from those 3,000 people that were killed. Moses goes back up the mountain and he intercedes again. He is the intercessor for the people. And he gets the second set of tablets. God renews his covenant with the people. The commandments. When you look at the commandments, notice, one through four deal with our relationship with God. It's all about relationship. Our vertical relationship between us and God. Thou shalt have no other gods. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then the remaining sixth, he gives instructions on how to deal with people. And he says, Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness. And you shall not covet your neighbor's stuff, including his wife, his home, his possessions. All this has taken place. If I was going to recap it all, all that's happened, it might look like something like what you'll see here in this video. The desert sand whirls with the wind, carried by cries of distant Egyptian echoes, the Red Sea long closed. A voice rich and flowing like heaven. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. So let the ten spoken then begin again for me and you, and say it with me if you choose. Everything the Lord has spoken, we his people will surely do. We, his people, that's us. All that he has spoken, we will surely do. He's the Lord who brought his people out of Egypt. He's the Lord who forgave all of the sins of those people as well as us. He's the Lord who took us out of darkness and brought us into this wonderful light called Christ and salvation. He's the Lord who has given us all a second chance, and most of us many more than just one. This is the Lord who loved us enough to send his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. All the Lord has spoken, we will surely do. But we don't. The problem starts when we take God off the throne and we put ourselves on the throne. I'm pretty certain I can speak for most all of us when I say, I don't like to do what I'm told to do. There is that thing in us called rebellion that most people do not like to do what they're told to do even if it's God telling them what to do. And in the Bible and in the story as we continue on, we see here the beginning of a recurring theme that we're going to see over and over. People trying to do what is right, saying that we love God and we will surely do all that he has spoken. But when push comes to shove and the pressure comes on and the peer pressure arises and old habits start to bubble up in our life, we blow it. We choose, we cave in to sin. And way too often our flimsy excuse goes something like this. Well, I'm not so bad. 
You should see. Now fill in the blank. You should see all the people I work with. I am not so bad. You should see my brother, my sister, my dad, my mom. You should see them. You should see my neighbor. The problem is, when we stand before the throne of grace, we're not going to be compared to our neighbors, our brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, our fellow workers. We're going to be compared to Christ. He's the standard. This brings us to a real earthly dilemma that requires a heavenly solution. And that's part of the purpose of God's story. Our earthly dilemma is we can't fix it. We blow it. As we said in adult Sunday school, why did God give the law? He gave the law to reveal sin. To show us that we can't keep the law. To show us that we can't in our own strength ever be good enough. There's nothing we can do to earn the favor of God short of accepting Jesus Christ as our, our Lord and Savior. That's it. He did all of this to show us that there is no human way to keep the commandments, to keep the law. And a lot of us say, well, I'm pretty good at most of them. But there's a scripture in James 2.10 that says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of violating the whole thing. It's like James is just informing us one more time, no matter how hot a stuff you think you are, you can't cut it and neither can I. We need Jesus. Only the righteousness of Christ can keep us from the consequences of sin. What was the consequence of sin? What did God say the consequence of sin was? He tells us in Romans that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And then he tells us the penalty, the wages, the price, the consequences of sin is death. We all deserve death. We all deserve hell. We all deserve eternal separation from God. Eternal torment. I could exaggerate and make up as much horror about hell as I possibly could and it wouldn't even come close to the reality. That's what we deserved. And he's showing us, he's lovingly showing us that in his plan there is a solution to this earthly problem we have as humans. And it's a heavenly solution in Jesus Christ, his son, who came to earth to pay the price. And once we realize that he's paid the price, he still wants some things. We need to understand and be reminded over and over, he's a jealous God. And you know why he's a jealous God? I've heard people say, boy, he must be insecure to be that jealous. Because when I'm jealous, it's usually my insecurity showing. No, he's a jealous God because he knows that every other God will lead to sin and death. That's why he's a jealous God. It's not for his benefit, it's for ours. He knows when we put something else on the throne beside him, we're in trouble and we will suffer the consequences. He is jealous for our attentions and our affections because he knows it will bring blessing to us. It's not about his needs. We don't serve a needy God. We think that sometimes. 
God really needs me for this, that, or the other thing. He's jealous. Boy, he's insecure. None of that could be further from the truth. He's jealous because he knows that's what would bring blessing in our life. God wants our attention. He wants our affection. He wants our commitment. The commandments, you shall love the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. He's jealous. Don't make any idols. Don't make any graven images. Don't worship anything else. Just think what Israel did. Israel traded this powerful, powerful God who had accomplished all these amazing miracles and brought them out of bondage and they traded it in for a golden calf. A calf that couldn't even eat grass. It was worthless, except for the value of the gold. They traded it. Boy, and I'm smart enough to know I'm not trading God, even if it's a calf that can eat grass. We're not that stupid. Or are we? What do we trade? We do trade. When we get God off of the throne in our lives and put ourselves on that throne or put something else on that throne, we're trading God. And we put some good things on that throne. Don't get me wrong. But if your spouse is on that throne, you've traded God for your spouse. Your family's on that throne, you've traded God for your family. You put your job on that throne, your paycheck on that throne, you've traded God for your paycheck and your job. And the list goes on and on. I put golf on that throne and I have just traded golf for God. Now obviously none of those things are bad things unless we put them on the throne and put them before God. We forget we forget. We are forgetful people. And that's not a new thing. It's interesting in Psalms, and I, I didn't put this on the overhead, but if you go to Psalms 106 sometimes, and you read verses 19 through 22, it's really interesting. This is like, this is like four or five hundred years after this event at Mount Sinai when they made the golden calf. And the psalmist is writing. And you know what he does? He tells the story we just told. He says, remember when our people, our forefathers, did this. This foolish thing. And he reminds them, 400 years after the event, we need to remember, we need to be reminded. That's why we need one another. We have the Holy Spirit to continually remind us. We don't want to trade God for anything else. The first commandment really shows our need for him. That's what it's all about. You should have no other gods because you need me. You need me. Don't make any graven images. Don't put anything else on that throne because there will be consequences that lead to sin and death. You need me. There's one other item in the area of the story I want to cover very quickly that we see in chapter 5 of the story. And this is kind of what I, I started talking about at the very beginning of this transition where God says, I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to dwell with you in the middle of the camp. God had told Moses when he was up on the mountain, he says, you know what, I need a place to stay. 
build me a tabernacle. And he gives very intricate, very definite, detailed instructions of how to build this tabernacle. And if you read it, you get all these instructions. And inside it, there's a tent within the the walls of this tabernacle. And and in the, the back part of it, it's called the Holy of Holies. God says, do all this. And I'm going to come and live and dwell amongst the middle of you all, all, the whole camp. There's pictures with millions around the tabernacle, and he's camped in the center. And it tells us when they finish building the temple, the, excuse me, the tabernacle, the tent, it says God came down and the glory of God filled the temple. And there was a cloud over it during the day, and there was a fire within it during the night, that the people knew the presence of God was there. The presence of God. The people did not have any direct access to God. They couldn't go in and talk to God. But his presence was there. He wanted to live with them. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to dwell with them. When we look at Israel's lower story, like we're looking at it today, it really reveals to us God's upper story again. He wants to dwell with his people. He wants to dwell with you and me. He wants to live in us. And this new covenant we have is so much better because that, that temple, that tabernacle, that tent that they made, in later years they would make a temple out of, of a brick and mortar and stone. He's no longer living there. The Bible says you and I are the temple of God. He lives and dwells in us. We have direct access to God. Our jealous God sent Jesus to die on a cross for us to pay the price for our sins that he could come and live and dwell in each one of us. That's the offering that he's making. That's the gift that he, the, that he holds out before every one of us. I want to come and live with you. I want to be with you. I want to have intimate relationships with you. But you have to receive it. When Moses was on the mountain pleading with God, he says, God, you can't leave us alone. If you don't go with us, I'm not going. He invited God's presence. It's the same today. We have to invite God into our heart. He's not going to come storming in, kicking the doors down and force your hand. He just offers freely the gift of salvation to everybody who acknowledges that we are sinners and need a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior. And when we realize and acknowledge that to Him, we invite Him to come into our life. And the moment you invite him into your life, he will respond. And he requires, just as he did then, he wants us to make him Lord of our life. So when I invite him in, I'm offering all of me to him. That's his plan. That's his upper story. We will disappoint God at times. But that's why he sent Jesus. Jesus is the one who restores. He's the one who rebuilds. And he's the one who redeems in each one of our lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, I I just give you thanks that you make your plan of salvation so clear to us, even back in the Old Testament. Father, that Jesus 
is the culmination of your perfect plan for us to be restored to relationship with you. God, and I pray that if there's anyone here who has not extended that invitation, surrendered their life to Jesus, today would be the day that they would do just that. God, you didn't wait for us to get all cleaned up and smelling good. Your word says that while we were still sinners, Jesus came to earth to die on that cross in my place. I thank you for that truth. And I pray that that truth would resonate in each person here and that no one would leave here today without accepting that gift of salvation. Lord, we pray also that as we leave this place, God, we go as your ambassadors. God, that we are your chosen nation. We are your royal priesthood. We go as a representative of the king. I pray, Lord, that you would guide and direct us, that we bring glory and honor to you in all that we do. I pray for your protection over us in this week that's ahead. I pray for those divine opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others who don't know you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.